My name is Craig Pickett. I'm an executive recruiter. More than a decade ago, I started my practice for one purpose, to use my experience as a former military aviator, business jet sales executive, and P&L leader to help aviation and aerospace companies and their executives be fast, adaptable, and strategic. I do these podcasts to inspire and inform, but more importantly, they are a focused platform to help business leaders grow. Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. Welcome back to the uh, Aerospace Executive Podcast. I am uh, thrilled to have Mark Ditto with me today. Mark is a, a partner with Vetter Price up in Chicago. Um, he's an attorney who represents banks, finance companies, private equity, and hedge funds in all, all aspects of uh, complex commercial a- aircraft and high-value equipment finance. So, Mark, thanks for coming on with me today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Craig. So, uh, last time we were, we were speaking, a lot of money was coming into the market. A lot of deals, a lot of asset-backed securities were, were getting done on aircraft and engines. And then COVID came along. So, uh, what has your world been like post post COVID and uh, with all the with all the chaos that's thrown into the uh, the airlines and the commercial aircraft industry? It certainly has been a far different landscape than we when we were talking back at the end of February. You know, but back then the capital markets were still uh, were were still hot. You know, the, the the ABS markets, especially over the past couple of years, to your point, have just seen a, a huge influx of new money. Uh, you know, but there were I think 17 aircraft ABS deals in 2019 for just over 10 and a half billion of debt and equity. We had tradable e notes and all sorts of new engineered products that had arisen in the past couple of years. And, and since the pandemic, you know, those, those capital markets, especially with respect to aircraft, have, have really just frozen. Uh, and, you know, they, they continue to be frozen for almost all asset classes. Really, you know, throughout the month of, of March and even into April, um, we've seen some falling in the capital markets in other asset classes, you know, auto loan securitizations, credit card securitizations, things like that. Uh, and the government's revived uh, a program that came about back in the Great Recession, uh, the Term Asset Backed Securities Loan Facility, or, or TALF. And, and, and that's being touted as sort of going to help those other asset classes too. But unfortunately, you know, aircraft aren't an eligible class for that program, and investors to date are still incredibly skittish about investing in aircraft ABS. So it's been a it's been a remarkable market shift <laughs> from what we've been seeing in the in the securities financing space over the last couple of years to to the current market we're now in. Yeah, I can imagine. So, so you know, you know, obviously, you know, now you've got you know a slew of leasing companies out there, some very well established, some new to the market. You've got airlines which are. You know, look, they've seen their revenues just evaporate, and they're taking some money from government, various governments. So, you know, now we're talking about rent deferrals. Um, you, know, you know, I'm sure uh, a lot of the airlines are trying to use a force majeure clause to um, to solidify their need for rent deferrals. How's all that? How's all that playing out in the industry? From you know, from the conversations that you've you know, you're seeing. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, initially, when all when all of this hit, you know, one of the first things we were asked to look at by our clients were you know, the application of the force majeure clauses in their contracts 
and you know both their ability and their, their the ability of their counterparties to walk away from the deal. And just if, if any if folks are out there that, are, that aren't quite sure what we're talking about, a force majeure clause is a the clause in a contract that basically says if, if an event occurs that's outside the control of either, of either party, then that event prevents them from performing under the contract, well, then their performance and liability is excused. And those clauses are you know, typically they're drafted very broadly, and they include things, you know, catch-alls like acts of God, um, riots, civil wars, things like that. Um, and so we were asked, will our counterparties have a basis to walk based on those uh, clauses, or can we walk? And, and the law on that point under, uh, or the New York law on that point, I should say, is that those clauses are typically construed you know, very narrowly, and then the events have to be beyond the party's control, and they have to be you know, unforeseen. And the courts are generally sort of loath to enforce catch-all provisions. So what we've seen, and there hasn't actually been any litigation on this yet, so there is a case pending in Delaware that, that we're following. Uh, based on th this particular pandemic, there's obviously case law about force majeure clauses that have tried to be exercised in the past. But, but what we're seeing is that Based on that prior case law, you're trying to invoke a general catch-all like an acts of God or something like that. Courts typically won't enforce that. But if there are, if the type of event that you're talking about, like an epidemic or a disease or something like that, is specifically in that clause, then the parties that are trying to enforce will probably have better luck. So there isn't a lot of case law out there, you know, on point. But that is generally generally what we're seeing. So it's, it's, in my mind today, other than that one case that's, that's now pending, you know, we haven't seen a lot of folks actually try to back out of contracts based on force majeure, which is, in my mind, a good thing. People are still still willing to, to try to get the deals done to the extent that they were documented pre-COVID. Yeah, no, I hear a lot of, yeah, I've been reading some, you know, seeing some articles in the Wall Street Journal, a lot of the retailers, you know, outside of aircraft and, you know, aviation, a lot of retailers are trying to use, you know, force majeure against their, you know, their, uh, you know, re landlords. Um, you know, Simon properties and stuff like that. So it's you know obviously it's a you know it's a it's a great you know, um, you know the, you know there's some there's something to it. It's like hey look you know the you know COVID came along and wrecked our business and we couldn't do anything about it. It was sort of an act of God. I could see both both ends of the you know both ends of the spectrum quite frankly. But you know at the, at the end of the day, you know the you know you, know, you got to look to the future too and say hey if 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 we just wreck everybody that is you know you know, financed all these assets and we walk away and don't pay the bills, it leaves us in a very precarious position down the road when we try to go back to the well for financing once again. So yeah, that, I, that, That's right. And, you know, what we've been seeing now is folks, as they're drafting new contracts, specifically trying to put in those those phrases like epidemics, pandemics, disease. You know, the, the, the other side of that, of course, is that you know, one of the tests under the law is that the, the the circumstance that you're trying to, to account for has to be unforeseen. So it's questionable whether you know, putting those in current contracts would actually even allow a party to rely on that for purposes of this current situation, because obviously it's foreseen, it's out there, everybody knows about it. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic of how you know, the folks, the intent of folks drafting the contract, how that might actually interact with what the legal precedent is. Gotcha. Where do you, you know, you know, obviously, you know, where do you see, you know, the, you've got some great, you know, some, some mammoth publicly traded, you know, leasing companies out there, um, you know, Air Lease, Air Cap, et cetera. You've got some other ones, you know, you know, BOC and, 
you've got some big, you know, big leasing companies, and they're very well capitalized, and they're probably going to double down, or they may, they may very well double down. But where do you see the most risk in the, you know, the financing arena right now? For you know, um, where do you see the most risk? Where do you see the most opportunities? Well, you have to. I mean, you have to look at just the massive amount of rent deferrals that have been requested, you know, from airlines over the course of the past three months, and that I'm sure will be requested again you know, as this as the pandemic plays out and flight travel continues to be depressed. You have to start there, and then you know, the backside of that is how that affects you know, the debt deals that, that the lessors are doing, and that lack of principal or that lack of rent that's coming in affects their ability to make their principal and interest payments on the debt. Right. I mean, to your point, I think based on their their first quarter financial results that I was reading, you know, the, the big three listed lessors, Fly, ALC, and Aircap, to your point, had agreed to something something about over 500 million of rent deferrals uh, since all this began. And I mean, that's that's been true across the board. I mean, I think based on what you know, what folks have been saying and what I've been hearing from my clients, you know, more than 80 percent of airlines have actually been asking for rent deferrals the first time around. And that, those were typically two or three month deferrals. But once that happened, I mean, you, they were already a couple months in, right? And so now this month and next month, we're probably going to start seeing that, that second wave of deferrals. And they've taken all forms. Now you've got, there were partial deferrals, there were full, full deferrals. Some airlines agreed to pay interest on the, on the deferred amounts. Um, some lessors were asking for lease extensions on the back end. So if you're going to defer rent for three months, you know, you'll kick the lease term out by three months so that you can make it up, uh, so that you can make up that lost revenue. There were early returns, and, you know, folks have been agreeing to reductions in the EOL comp. They've really just taken a, a variety of flavors of folks have tried to figure out how to how to renegotiate the underlying lease contracts and otherwise give uh, the, the airlines flexibility. But that, I mean, that in my mind is obviously the, the, the biggest risk facing the whole industry right now is just a lack of cash, the lack of revenue being generated. Yeah, well, no revenue means no cash, and cash flow, you know, sucks. But so what, you know, so how does this affect, you know, for the, you know, the general layman, uh, you know, term? You've got all these asset-backed securities, and when they were when they were written, you know, there was an evaluation of, you know, the value of those assets, and now I think I got to think that that. You know those evaluations have gone totally out of, out the door, um, and so you've got small companies that are maybe sitting on fifty, hundred engines, and, and a bank, you know, loaned them money based on you know the value of fifty or hundred CFMs, and those things are worth half price now. Does this re- does this require banks to go back in and you know reevaluate you know you know do a you know a, a reevaluation of the values of everything out there and you know, well, I mean, I guess you can take you can take that in a couple of parts. I mean, with respect to the to the aircraft back ABS deals that are out in the market, um, you know, nothing. There's, there's not anything in my mind that that, that is going to require a reevaluation there just yet. Now, certainly, investors may be doing that um, on their own to try to figure out you know, what what the value of that collateral is worth. But you know, those deals are still performing. Um, and they're structured in such a way that, you know, it, if they were to stop performing, well, there are liquidity facilities in place that are typically you know, designed to cover a certain a, a certain period of debt payments. And I think this is going to have to continue for another three, four, five months before you start actually seeing that those facilities 
being utilized, if at all, and then past that, whether you're going to see actual ABS defaults. And, and when you get to that scenario, uh, and the folks that are that are controlling the senior debt are looking to enforce remedies, that's really when I think you're going to be you're going to to see the rubber hit the road, and folks are going to really start being focused on the underlying asset value when they're when they're trying to enforce. That being said, you know there are there are other debt products out there that my clients have been asking about that, that are now particularly attractive. I mean, one of those are the uh, the double ETCs or the enhanced equipment trust certificates that airlines issue and then that are publicly traded. You know, those have historically performed very well in downturns for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then they become attractive, att- attractive ways to get exposure to the aviation industry um, in, in downturns like this, especially when you can buy them below par. So we've seen a lot of questions about those uh, in, in the, recent, the recent few months. <laughs> and you- that, that's the way that I think investors are focused on getting back into that exposure. Um, with the ABS markets present. So you you know you know locally to me we've got a we've got a guy who lives around the corner from me. He's worth a ton of money and everybody just calls him 30% Dan. He goes and buys distressed debt and distressed everything at you know 30 cents on the dollar, take it or leave it. Are you seeing a new class of investor coming in? Are you seeing a vulture class coming in now and looking for the opportunities to you know, bail out some of these banks and finance companies that may not have the uh, the stomach or the wherewithal to endure the uh, the stress. Yeah, and certainly. I mean, and those, those vulture or opportunistic investors or, or whatever you want to call them. I mean, those have been the, the folks that have been focused on these these double ETC products. Um, and so, what the, what these are in particular, they're a way for an airline to finance. You know, a large portion of, of aircraft in the capital markets at very attractive rates. They were introduced back in the early 90s. There's, a, there's over 100 billion have been issued since then. You know, and then airlines for airlines, they're, they're really attractive because you can, you know, they can finance up to a, you know, a billion, a billion and a half dollars worth of aircraft in a, in a single deal. Now, why investors like these so much is because all of the aircraft in that pool. Are, are cross defaulted, and so if an airline w- would go into bankruptcy, they couldn't cherry pick aircraft. They would have to reject all the leases or assume all the leases, right? And so, that, so that, that makes it difficult for an airline, if it's unless it has a glut of aircraft, to say we you know we don't want any of these aircraft secured by those uh, secured by that double ETC. You know, the other the other side of that is they do offer incredibly attractive financing. So, you know, if an airline goes into bankruptcy. And just to take a step back, uh, there's a particular provision of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, Section 1110, that applies to, to U.S. Air, applies to U.S. airlines. That says that you know within within 60 days they either have to come current on the defaulted debt um, or reject the leases. And then there is a third option: they can they can negotiate and extend. But but it's, it's a big protection for investors because they basically get to override what's under, otherwise the automatic stay in bankruptcy. And can get access to their collateral if it's rejected within 90 days, or the, like I said, the airline has to come current. And so, if you're in a bankruptcy scenario and you're looking at this double ETC, historically airlines have have continued to perform on those products, and it's almost impossible within the scope of those publicly traded instruments 
for airlines to get pay payment deferrals or even get anybody to agree to remedy forbearance because there's really no no traceable counterparty. I mean, they're held through DTC and DTC trades on behalf of, of you know, their constituents. And so it isn't like a small syndicate of banks where you can go out and get everyone's consent to a, to a, to a deferral or a restructuring. So, you know, for those reasons, they've been very attractive to, to opportunistic investors, especially if they can come in and pay, to your point, you know, pennies on the dollar for that debt. Yeah, no, I got you. What about you know, so United? I mean, United came out was about a month ago. And I think tried to issue 250 million in bonds secured by their aircraft, but more or less they they cherry picked the aircraft they were going to secure it with, and the market said no. Is that what the you know, the double ETCs are doing? Is sort of saying, hey, look, yeah, it's 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 all or nothing. Yeah, I mean, and these are deals that are that are out that are already out there, right? But they're publicly traded, so these opportunistic investors are looking to come in on the secondary market and buy exposure to them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, to, to that point, you know, they, they, these pools of aircraft that are financed in these vehicles were chosen you know, prior to the recession, and, they, and a lot of times they can make up, you know, a good a good portion of an airline's fleet. And because again, because they're all cross defaulted, you know, the airline can't cherry pick. And so if it's, if it's in a bankruptcy or in a default scenario, you know, it, it has to either keep performing with respect to that whole pool or reject the whole pool and let the creditors come in and take all, and, you know, repossess all the aircraft. And so, yeah, to, to, to your point, that's exactly right. And that's, again, one of the reasons why these are so are looking like such good opportunities for the, uh, the opportunistic investors right now. Gotcha. So, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm CEO of a leasing company, obviously I've got rent deferrals. Coming at me, and that's you know, yeah, that's a given. What is what's really stressing me out right now? I mean, we've got yeah, you know, you've got bankruptcies, uh, the, you know, the threat of bankruptcies of multiple airlines. I mean, now we're you know we're talking repossessions, and then you know valuations on those repossessions. What what what's worrying me? What am I gearing up for? You know, in the next six months. More rent deferrals, as I was saying. Um, the restructurings on the back end, if, if they have, you know, if they have warehouse facilities or other debt facilities that are you know, secured by a, a pool of aircraft that are on lease to multiple lessees, and you're worried about which lessees are going to perform, and ultimately, are you going to have enough debt service across all of your, all of your uh, portfolio fleet there to service? Or enough rent coming in across your fleet to, to, to service your debt, and if not, are you going to be able to cure that, or are you going to be in defaulted of your facility? So, I mean, you're you're worried about that. You're worried about bankruptcies of airlines. I mean, we saw I think both Avianca and Latam file last month. Um, obviously, two huge South American lessees. Mm -hmm. um, so you're worried about that. You're worried. You've been worried about trying to get your lenders to consent to these rent deferrals under your financing documents because you know, outside of the warehouse context, if you have term loans, especially that are secured by specific air, by air, aircraft on lease to a specific lessee, a nine times out of 10 to agree to any rent deferral or any sort of modification to the underlying documents, you have to go to that bank and get, and get your banks, get your lenders consent, right? And, and consents these days are taking a long time to make it through the bank process. And because of the environment, everything has to go up through credit committee. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I just finished helping out a client where they were trying to get a bank to agree to a, a rent deferral. 
know, from March and April, and the bank couldn't even get it through committee until May. You know, and it's like, well, the airline's not paying, guys, so we can't really do in, you know, do anything else about it. You just have to get it through committee. You know, so I mean, th- those are those are the things that that are stressing me out. I, I would probably also be worried, you know, if, if my airline credits, if if, the, if those leases are backed by guarantees, you know, if my guarantees are going to be enforceable. Um, especially in light of all of the underlying, the modifications of the underlying transaction documents that I'm doing in my amendments. I mean, most of the time they are. I actually just wrote an article about this as well. Uh, you know, the key to the key on the guarantee enforcement side is that the modifications. You know, the best practice is just to get, get your guarantor to consent to those modifications. Right. Um, and you know, typically, if you're just extending time of payment for a lessee. Now, that's not going to otherwise render your guarantee unenforceable under New York law. But if you're otherwise modifying the obligations of the lessee at all, or you're in, especially if you're increasing those modifications. So, for instance, if you're extending the lease term and trying to make up you know, the lease payments on the back end and you're getting a little bit more rent on the back end, or if you're charging interest payments, or if there's anything that increases those financial obligations of the lessee, well, you need to get your guarantor to consent to that if it hasn't already done so in the underlying guarantee. Or you're going to be in a situation where your guarantee, your guarantee may not be enforceable against your guarantor. Gotcha. You know, Donald Trump back in the I don't know, 80s or 90s when he was a billion and a half dollars in debt to the banks and on the brink of filing, he realized that he had more power than anybody ever imagined. When you owe a bank a billion dollars, at some point they're just hoping you pay. Are you know are the banks realizing that? Hey, look, you know it's ugly. In the industry, and you think they are they are they really you know, are they amenable to you know working it out, or are they you know do you think they're they're playing a little bit more the the hard line? If <laughs> if you owe the bank a hundred dollars, it's your problem. If you owe the bank a hundred thousand dollars, it's the bank's problem, right? I mean, that's right, the exactly. That I always heard it. <laughs> yeah. And I think initially when all of this came out, the banks were taking a bit of a hard line. Uh, in the past couple months, I mean, the deals that I've been working on, I have seen, though it has taken some time to, to, to get folks there on the various amendments and concessions that, that we've been working on, but the, the banks in general have been willing to work with their existing customers. You know, I mean, it is it is a small industry, and you've got, you know, mm-hmm. your lessors working with the same group of 20, 30, 30 banks, and they're going to for the most part, you know, they want to maintain those relationships because both parties are going to be around after all this is done. And, you know, sure. And so uh, folks generally on the transactions I've been on have been cooperative. You know, it's definitely taking a lot of conversations, but yep. the banks for the most part seem to be seem to be willing to, to, to play ball. Where do you see the opportunity? So, you know, is, um, you know, you know, obviously the airlines are restructuring. A lot of old metal is going to the desert, and we'll probably sit there, which means that you know the the industry will probably be rebuilding on 737 new gens and A320s, you know, narrow bodies, um, you know, which are going to take the lion's share of the uh, you know the the flying. Where do you see the opportunities for investors? You know, but you know, in the next in the next twelve months, is it you know taking positions on these, on the on the aircraft, taking positions on the engines or or, or green time engines, you know, or where a better question yet is where are you seeing the most interest coming from, you know, outside investors and clients? Sure. 
Well, I mean, hopefully the capital markets will thaw at some point later on this year. You know, my fingers are still crossed for that. Um, and we're starting to see some interest, again, you know, in the ABS markets outside of the aviation sector, and even a couple of perhaps mixed asset deals involving some aircraft. Um, we'll get some traction later in the year. And as long, if that doesn't happen, as long as the ABS markets are frozen, that investors, again, are going to be looking to double ETCs. Um, the, the, the amount of aircraft that are being retired, to your point, and are getting parked in the desert, I mean, there'll, there'll probably be some opportunities there for folks that, you know, work with end-of-license live assets, especially if they, you know, otherwise have part-out consignments or do part-outs themselves. You know, there'll, there'll be opportunities there. Um, there are opportunities in the debt markets um, for some of the sort of more non-traditional lenders that, that are still able to get new deals through credit. Um, I've, seen, you know, I've seen a handful of a handful of, sort of the, the non-bank banks, so to speak, still being active and looking for new deals. But you know, in the interim, really, you know, folks are just going to have to continue to wait and see. You know, I don't think there's enough certainty out there to really to really be able to point to one thing or another. Certainly, I've seen a bunch of green time leases, also. You know. Hmm. Is that uh, yeah I, you know you know the green time lease? I, I suspect anybody with a green time engine is going to be in a pretty good position moving forward. Um, I know you've, you you structured deals on a lot of you know on a lot of engine lease you know a lot of engine purchases and leases and, and things of the sort. Um, yeah, is that uh, yeah is that where you see some of the uh, you know, some you know some of the aftermarket opportunity. Yeah, for those for sure, for sure, without a doubt. And folks are getting quite creative in the way that they're structuring and documenting those deals. Um, and everything from you know full payments up front to delivery when things get you know no return conditions delivery when when the engines are completely run out. But I think especially on the engine side of the market, folks are really trying to. Preserve those relationships and work with their work with their customer base however they can. Well, yeah, I mean your customer today is your customer tomorrow. It's like you said, it's a small it's a small industry, and um, yeah, unless unless you're an airline that goes that goes bankrupt and doesn't come back. <laughs> yeah, unless you're an airline that goes bankrupt and doesn't come back. So yeah, which kind of leads me to my next thing. You know, look, the airlines, yeah, your your airlines in the United States are are, are really national assets, and a lot of people have just taken the tack. You know, let it be the shareholders. It's just the shareholders' problem. Um, yeah, which is easy. You know, the shareholders take you know the shareholders take the risk. Um, they get the reward on the way up, and you know, you. But you know, a bankrupt airline doesn't. You know, doesn't help anybody. Um, should the you know should the government be in some way, shape, or form you know, backstopping a lot of these, these debt issuances? You know, you know the you know. Some of the you know, some of the debt out there. I don't know about backstopping. I mean, I, you, we've certainly seen governments step in, both in the U.S. and in several foreign countries, and you know, I don't want to say bail out, but in essence, bail out, provide enough enough working capital and liquidity for these airlines to keep to keep running profitably. And oftentimes, those those are coming with some strings attached, and we've seen governments try to take equity stakes in airlines. Um, we've seen a handful of other interesting structural developments, but I think that's appropriate, right? I don't know that a full backstop of any sort of debt securities 
you know, going forward really needs to be at the policy, but that's left to the policymakers and is well above my pay grade. Uh, you know, that being said, I think that I think the government response so far has been has been necessary, and I think it's only a positive for folks in the, in this industry that you know, see that see the transactions that they do and see the businesses that they run. I mean, they, they're predicated on these airlines, these national treasures surviving. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, look, you you know, Delta, United, American, Southwest, et cetera, go away. You know, the economy is, you know, the, the economy is crushed. I mean, we're already, you know, it's, we're already, you know, seeing a lot of ways. It's, you know, the uh, the importance they have to, you know, the U.S. and world economy should not be, uh, you know, should not be mitigated, you know, on, on, you know, not thought about. I can't think of the right word to say there, but, you know, discounted, I guess, is the right word. What about new airlines? There were some new airlines coming into the, uh, you know, coming into the picture. You had uh, Moxie, I think, with David Nealman and his group. You had uh, another one coming up out of Texas um, with Andrew Levy. Is there any appetite now for, you know, from a from a debt, you know, from a, a finance market to support a new airline coming in that may want to, you know, start on lower capital costs with, you know, some. You know, recently you know, traded in assets per se. You know, that's a good question. Um, I I would have to think that it's it's going to be tough going for new airlines. You know, in the in this current environment, uh, especially again with the, the depressed demand for travel. Now that being said, I I would think the calculus would also be highly airline specific based on you know, where it's flying or, or what type of uh, what type of equipment it's operating, um, and just the general overall. Financial health, but but past that, I mean, I can't really, I can't really look into the crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, hey, look, you know, family offices and private equity, and you know, alternate alternate investment. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to speak to those guys. You know, there there's plenty of money, uh, plenty of dry powder on the sidelines, and, and uh, they'll invest it where they see the opportunity. It's just you know, from a from a you know a structured finance. Hey, we need to go get financing for the airplanes. Is there an appetite to do it right now in this? In this market, is that need to you need to you know sit for a year to to let the dust settle? Right, no, certainly. certainly. Are you optimistic? I mean, what do you you know, what's your yeah you know, what's your crystal ball saying as far as you know traffic's coming back, airlines are starting to fly again. The wild card is probably governments, you know, opening yeah. their borders and letting people cut you know, pass through customs. What's yeah. uh, what's your crystal ball saying? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, assuming that there are, are big second waves of the virus, of, uh, of the virus, the pandemic that hit uh, later on this fall, I know assuming that we sort of have it under control, I certainly think things are going. Uh, well, I hope, certainly hope things get better as the uh, as the year progresses. And I know more folks flew on Memorial Day. Uh, I mean, there was what did the TSA say? Like, I think a quarter of a million people flew. Now that's down almost 90% from the year before, but it was by far more people than have flown so far since the pandemic. So I think we are seeing people begin to travel again. Um, that I think there will be a second round, uh, and hopefully not a third round of rent deferral requests, and then the back end related debt you know, debt restructuring P and I deferral requests. So I think we're not nearly out of the woods there yet. We're going to see. That play out over the over the over the coming summer months, but hopefully toward the end of the year, um, you see we continue to see a little more uptick in air travel, and as more people fly and you know, the industry starts generating revenue again, it'll it'll 
It'll be a, 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 some amount of return to normal, though. I think that's going to be pretty slow. Yeah. No, I, look, I, I, I'm looking at 1Q. You know, I figure 1Q, 2Q, 2021 before we're, you know, we see some sort of quote-unquote normalcy in passenger traffic again. And, and that's an eternity when you owe, you know, a couple hundred grand a month per airplane. Um, and you're trying to figure out how, or, or you're owed a couple hundred grand a month per airplane and holding everything off. So, you know, um, you know my, my prayers are sooner rather than later for a lot of people. Right. You know, I, one thing we do get back to normal, and I would be remiss if I, if I came onto a podcast in light of where we are and in the legal environment, I didn't talk a little bit about the gas trading platform because when we do come back online, this is a product that, that just launched at the beginning of June. If, if that does gain widespread traction, I think you're going to see decreased costs on the trading front for folks doing buys and sells of aircraft, um, which would obviously be beneficial all the way around and it could lead to an uptick in trading, which would be great for folks throughout the industry. Uh, so what, just if I could say a couple words on it quickly. The, yeah, no, dude, tell us, you know, I was, good, I was just getting ready to say, hey, yeah, we're, we're, we're not in a hurry here, so tell us tell us more. Uh, so the uh, GAS stands for the Global Aircraft Trading System, and it's been, it's a platform that's been developed by the Aviation Working Group in conjunction with, with law firms and lessors and other interested counterparties over the last few years. And, and the idea is that aircraft will be owned in trust similar to the way a lot of U.S. registered aircraft are owned now. And then those interests will be be tradable on an online platform. And so as opposed to doing a full title transfer to an aircraft and going out and having to do a full lease novation if that aircraft's on lease to a lessee, the counterparties will be able to transact on these GATS forms and accomplish the trade you know, on the GATS database or the GATS platform um, without having nearly having to involve the lessee quite as much in that process. Now, you know, there, I've seen a move in the innovation process because I do a lot of, a lot of buys and sells on the, on the legal side from a documentation standpoint as part of my practice. Over the last two years to 18 months, there has been this big push away from sort of a tradition, even in the, the title transfer context, away from a traditional innovation, right, which would otherwise transfer the underlying lease from the, uh, from the, the uh, seller to the buyer. And where you would, you know, the buyer coming in as the new lessor would would, would want to get a, sl- a suite of representations and warranties from its incoming counterparty from the airline, right? And, and th- this is everything from corporate existence to perhaps you know, no event of default to you know no material litigation and other things like that. And the airlines have often viewed this as 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 a burden in general to try to sort through all those confirmations, and they also confirm economic things, right? Like you know. The, these are the current maintenance reserve balances. These are this is the current rent payments, et cetera, et cetera. Things that if you're incoming as a buyer, these are and as a lessor, these are very important because you want to confirm the economic deal with your ongoing counterparty, right? Mm-hmm. And the the pushback from sellers has been, well, just get that just get that information from us. Let's not go bother the lessee. Um, and so we've seen this shift from you know the, the sort of the full innovation where you get this suite from this, this suite of confirmation from your lessee. To a more limited amount of factual confirmations from the lessee, which really just sort of go to economic terms, and all the rest of that that the buyer and the incoming lessor would get originally would be given from the seller, you know, on the other side, in the sales side of the transaction, sort of leaving the lessee out of it. And then GATS takes this almost one step further, 
where the lessee really gives you know, no amount of, of confirmations or, or otherwise um, sort of involvement from the lessee other than perhaps you know a, a new insurance certificate. And then the buyer and the incoming lessor is, is left to rely sort of solely on that description of the universe from its seller counterpart, the outgoing lessor. And so the risk there from the buyer's perspective, right, is that without well, outgoing lessor, it may, it may not be a creditworthy entity. It may just be an SPV that owns a, that owns some aircraft in an ABS deal, right? It's just what we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier. So I mean, I'm I'm excited about GATS. I think it's going to be great for the industry. Um, I do think that you know if it does take off, we're going to need to see folks owning aircraft and trading with, with more creditworthy counterparties. Um, so so we'll we'll see how that shakes out. But that's been one of the the more interesting legal developments that that has arisen and and has launched during the course of the pandemic. Yeah, and you think it's going to be? Uh, is it still got some still got some uh, some working you know work throughs, or are we are we pretty close to seeing you know seeing something standardized? Well, the documentation that, that's otherwise part of that process is standardized. I think what, what what we haven't seen a lot of we haven't seen transactions utilize it yet, or at least I mm-hmm. haven't. Um, you know, like I said, it just launched ten days ago. And so I think we're going to see we need to see how much traction it gets. You know, there's already already been some pushback from some U.S. Um, from some U.S. airlines that are hesitant to use those new forms. Um, so we'll see how we'll see we'll see how much traction it gets because obviously the more the more folks that more airlines that are willing to to use it and the more folks in the industry that are willing to use it, the the, the, the greater the benefits are. Yeah. So Let's uh, let's save that one. Let's save that one for the next podcast. How's that? We can talk about Gatsby. Come kind of bring it on and, and talk about uh, how that's all pushing forward. That sounds good. Awesome. Hey, Mark. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. It sounds like uh, you're a little optimistic once the once the dust settles. I think you have to be. You know, I think I think you, I think you have to be, and I think. It's going to take some time, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm 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 optimistic for the future, especially especially 2021. How do people get a hold of you? Folks are welcome to reach out to me uh, via email. My email is mditto at betterprice dot com, uh, or they can call me uh, at my office in Chicago, which is the number is three one two six zero nine seven six four three. I would also say that you know, if folks are interested in reading the Literature that, that me and my colleagues have been public have been writing and publishing since the pandemic began on all the related legal issues. I would hi- highly encourage them to go to our website, BetterPrice.com. That there is a link there for all the articles and other information on the airline industry and the legal aspects and challenges it's been facing in light of the pandemic at our at our COVID page. So please please visit the website. And if you have any questions, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out and contact me. Awesome. Hey, thanks for coming on once again, Mark. And uh, we'll be sure to get everybody. Uh, we'll we'll post uh, we'll post your contacts on the uh, on the podcast show notes as well. Great. Thanks so much. Yes, sir. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube. Just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.